from the I don't know what to say. I'm just speechless. To the We see all sorts of life-changing moments at McKinney competitions. How would you react? Cars, houses, tech bundles and more from just £2 a ticket. No purchase necessary. For competitions, rules and conditions, see mckinneycompetitions.com. It's basically like a big table and you can create your own solar system in this table so you can drag out a little sun, you can then drag out a planet and try and make intelligent life. But if you do things right, like you can create really mad things like black holes and pulsars. Basically, strange matter is what happens, we think, if you crack open a neutron star and you just happen to be in the path of destruction and it will just turn our planet into like a rock within a few hours. It has a moon inside its rings called Pan, which is really cute and UFO shaped. Um, it has a lovely like blue hexagon on its North Pole. Um, it's just such a beautiful color and uh, it's so light it would float in a bath if you could shrink it down. We've got a really unique experience now and it's something that, as Courtney said, will inspire people to come and to learn and to go forward and think about a career in space. Those were the voices of Heather Alexander and Courtney Allison, education officers um, from Armagh Observatory and Planetarium. And if those clips haven't convinced you, just listen on and you'll find out why the Planetarium is the coolest place to visit this summer. This is your host, Elaine Ingram. And today, Courtney and Heather tell us all about the history of the planetarium, some mind-blowing facts about our universe, including what sci-fi films get it right and what ones get it wrong, and how much they love their job, which is why they'd encourage anyone to pursue a career in science. I'm here with Courtney and Heather from Arma Observatory and Planetarium. And um, you guys are no strangers to this type of thing, having, having a chat for a podcast, because I've been listening to um, your podcast, which is great crack altogether. And it's even called Intergalactic Crack. And oh, yeah, I have to say that I believe that tomorrow is um, International Asteroid Day. Am I correct? Yes, that's right. Uh, tomorrow is uh, Asteroid Day. It's the 30th of June every year. Um, we'll have a very special social, social media post going out on that, um, highlighting Elner Glow Healing. So keep an eye out on all the Arma Observatory and Planetarium socials for that. So you can tell me all about um, asteroids in a bit. But um, I suppose the, the first thing I want to ask you is about the planetarium itself. Um, it, it began as an observatory. Yeah, so, so the observatory was founded in um, 1790 um, by Archbishop Richard Robinson. And basically, we've been on the go since then. And um, it was in 1968 that the seventh director, Eric Mervyn Lindsay, who was a local from Portadown, he decided that um, one thing that we need to try and highlight the research done in the observatory is a planetarium. So he campaigned for 20 years, got the money, and the planetarium opened in 68. And before that, though... Um, the just talking about the um, the observatory, there there was one thing that I was reading on your site, Heather, um, and it was about the big the night of the big wind, which I found quite fascinating. That was uh, all over Ireland, but it's it's it was the biggest natural disaster 
in, in Ireland? The Night of the Big Win was actually uh, in 1839. Um, so yeah, in 1839, there was a wind that it was just basically, uh, it was like really strong gale force winds all across Ireland. About 200 people in Ireland died as a result of it. Um, and the third director here at the observatory, Thomas Romney Robinson, no relation to Richard Robinson, who I mentioned there, um, he... From that, he thought, right, we need a proper way to test the strength of the wind. So after several years of contemplation and building and prototypes, he invented the four cup anemometer, which is seen on the top of our building in the observatory, but also has been modified so that it's now three cups and they're used. This model is basically used all over the world today. And it was invented here in Armagh which That's is incredible. wild. Yeah, that is pretty wild. And you're you're the senior education officer. That's your role. And, and yes, Courtney, that's correct. Yeah, Courtney, what, what is your role? You seem to be, judging from your um, podcast, you're the sciencey one. You're the one that tells us all the scary stories and everything else. What, what's your role, Courtney? Um, I'm an education officer. Um, so Heather is technically my, my boss great boss. Um, I'm the one that the education team like to pass the questions to that nobody else wants to answer. So the really tricky ones like, what's the universe expanding into? And I do my best to answer them. <laughs> yeah, I will be asking you a few of those questions that because I've been listening to the podcast. And uh, I definitely uh, want to hear a, a, a few more things about that. But the planetarium itself now, um, in 1968, then, um, it became a planetarium and what's the kind of work that goes on there because there's an awful lot of scientific work that is involved it's not just you know just for the public to go and see all you know what you do but the, the work behind the scenes yeah i mean the the planetarium actually has an amazing history itself in that um one of our directors terence Smarta, again another local from northern ireland when he became director in the 70s he pioneered video technology um within planetaria and so um before that it was just you know like um like a light with you know pinholes that the light reflect or shone through to show stars but what he did was brought video into it and so that technology really took off and he ended up going to work for Evans and Sutherland who make the Digistar technology that we use in the planetarium today and so he really changed the face of the planetarium world you know so that is a really a big thing that came from us and so now we're using the technology that has bloomed from it to create our own digital theater shows so we have members of our team who are making our theater shows like um look up which you can come and see in the planetarium is made by us it's scripted by us we narrate it and um everything that you see in it you can see in northern ireland in the night sky in the summer it's a seasonal thing so it changes so that's some of the behind the scenes things but like Courtney was really even just today really active on the front line you know she took a school uh, do you want to say a bit more about that course yeah yes um obviously we're fortunate enough in our jobs to be able to welcome schools back to the planetarium now after a year and a half basically of because of lockdown uh, schools weren't allowed to attend so yesterday and today were the first ones back and um I know a lot of people, it's a formative experience to come to the planetarium. As a child, a lot of people will come back as teenagers and adults and say, oh, I remember the rocket launcher. I remember the dome. And it really sticks in people's minds and it inspires people to a huge degree. I know people 
that live elsewhere and maybe in America and they've come back and they bring their kids because it, it you know made such an impact on them as a child um so really you're hopefully inspiring the next generation of um, scientists and astronomers yeah, because it is, you know, there's a huge difference between reading that some, something, you know, in school books. I know for myself when I, when I was a kid, I was always going on field trips and things like that, that you, they're the things that you remember when it's hands on and when you're seeing things, because especially with science, it's such a conceptual thing, you know, it's very hard to imagine. And it's even, even the, the numbers, like the universe, like the size of the universe and everything being so, you know, infinite. And I, I think most people, I'm sure it's not just me, just can't get their head around that. But when you can put it into, you know, as perspective in, in the planetarium, I'm sure that is really helpful for, for kids. Oh, for sure. I mean, um, and just saying like the size of the universe there, that was actually our last podcast episode. So we can tell you that it is really hard to put into numbers and words the size of the universe. Even our director, you know, had to stop at the size of our galaxy. But what we decided to do during the lockdown was we decided to upgrade our whole exhibition area and experience because space, the one thing I would say is space is forever changing and we need to adapt with that. And so we decided to upgrade everything. We pulled out the old exhibits. We really put our heads together and thought about the research that goes on in the observatory, the type of science and information and entertaining and exciting things that people like. How can we put that into an exhibition area? And I have to say, I think we've hit the nail on the head because if you haven't been to the planetarium for a while, when you come back, you will see a massive, massive difference. It's very interactive. Everything, like there's a live space feed. So, you know, you can get recent space news. You can link to our blog, but there's my favorite bit. And uh, Courtney can say she's seen me at this is the stellar playground. It's so brilliant. Oh, it's like, it's this it's basically inbuilt into what we call it's a thematic island. You don't need to remember that phrase, but it's it's basically like a big table and you can create your own solar system in this table. So you can drag out a little sun. You can then drag out a planet and try and make intelligent life. But if you do things right, like you can create really mad things like black holes and pulsars and uh, magnetars. I got one of those the other day. It's like a challenge. I want to make everything, but it's really great. I find for older kids because you know nowadays kids are very like you know if they're a little bit bored they'll go on their phone but this is really interactive and if you yeah, challenge them to try something you know you're building yeah. your own stuff yeah and that's exactly you know, i've challenged the, oh, ahead, over the past few days um when they ask about black holes and that kind of thing you're talking about it but it's very abstract this gives you like a literal like okay make a black hole and then you're explaining to them as they do it like it's because you need something to have a solar mass of like 200 it needs to be a really big star to become a black hole and it's as they're doing it they're able to see the science that you're talking about because it's so hard to imagine when you're talking about things on such a huge scale um it's just it's wonderful it's a really really great tool to help explain the way solar systems work the way galaxies work it's it's just wonderful piece of kit it would be my favorite too i think heather yeah yeah, speaking about black holes, you have to tell us, Courtney, because black holes when I was a kid scared the life out of me. And listening to the podcast the other day, or last night actually, um, didn't make me any um, less scared. It actually made it worse because I started this, I was really scared of black holes. And um, like you, Heather, I thought that was the most scariest thing in the universe until um, 
until you start talking about um, strangelets and quirks and um, all those sort of things. So can you just scare us all now, please? <laughs> so I think the the fear of black holes in space comes from the idea that they're, they're so massive and you can't see them. Um, so I think strange matter is that little bit scarier because we're not even sure that it's there, but if it's there, will be powerless to do anything to stop it. So um, basically strange matter is what happens. We think if you crack open a neutron star and you just happen to be in the path of destruction and it will just turn our planet into like a rock within a few hours, our whole planet would shrink down to the size of an asteroid because it changes matter, the structure of matter itself, which is something that can't be undone. Okay, and there isn't anything we can do about it and we don't get any warning. Yes, no, um, no warning, nothing to do about it. So really, I suppose just do your best not to worry about it, which is easy to say. <laughs> yeah, we say that quite a lot here, you know, don't worry about it. You know, these things won't happen for a long time, but really that strange don't thing. Don't worry about the black hole at the center of our galaxy. Don't worry about it. <laughs> no, don't worry about the sun expanding. It happens in five billion years time. We won't be here. It's fine. But Courtney, you've just made the put the fear in me again. I thought I'd gotten over that, but now I've just remembered all the strange stuff. Oh dear. I hope you're okay there, Elaine, because I am freaking out a little. Yeah, and even like, you know, like little wee asteroids that are just flying around in space. And I know they say, and they're always saying things like, you know, there's an asteroid that's, you know, going to fly by Earth and, um, you know, it's like 500 gazillion billion miles away, which is near. Apparently, well, I'm not very good with numbers, so um, <laughs> they always say it's close by, but close by is a relative term when it comes to space. Um, but I always think, but sure, why? Why would like a meteor or something? Meteors do hit Earth and, every like, single hit, day. Yeah, but they and they always say, oh, should they usually land in the sea? But mm-hmm. but why would they usually land in the sea? Why would they not land? Why would they not land on my house right now? Like, why? Or what's the chances? <laughs> uh, well, the chances of it landing in your house are very, 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 very small. But the reason why they mostly fall into the ocean is because it's simply the Earth is mostly ocean. Um, when they hit land, it tends to be large patches of land like Russia the United States, Antarctica, the Arctic, um, deserts, you know, places where there's a lot of open space. In 1969, uh, an, a meteorite hit Northern Ireland. It's called the Bavidi meteorite, which you can see we actually have that meteorite on display in the planetarium. But that was so rare for that to happen because we are a small, small island in comparison. And there was, it was only, I think a couple of weeks ago, right, Courtney, that the first meteorite fell in like 30 years in the UK. You know? Yes, and it is rare. And um, the kind of meteorites that you're mo- most likely to find here would be like teeny tiny ones that managed to survive burning up in the atmosphere, but they're like grains of sand almost at this point, you know, in terms of like, the disaster zone meteorites and that kind of thing that we're thinking about in, in the movies and that kind of thing, so rare and unlikely to affect us. So again, not really something to worry about, hopefully. It, yeah, and you know, we, we've always had the movies to scare us, you know, as we grow up with, um, you know, science fiction and stuff like that. How close in reality is, you know, learning about the planets and science and stuff, you know, is that too what we see in the movies is there any 
it doesn't have well, any real bearing on it. <laughs> well, um, so some movies um, are really good, like um, the movie uh, Interstellar is quite good, and it actually got some acclaim from astronomers for showing um, – a black and I, I've not seen Interstellar. People are going to hate me for this, but like it shows a black hole and what it actually could look like. But other movies, like my absolute bugbear, is Armageddon. I know it's a great movie. Really? <laughs> well, the science behind it, you know, like so. There's this big asteroid that's coming towards the Earth, and they they see it very late on, and then their only option is to blow it up. And so when they blow it up, you know, these it's going to magically just part in two and miss the earth completely. No, n- just no, that won't happen. And the last thing well, we say is... would be a terrible idea. Exactly. You don't blow up things in space. No. <laughs> and so I remember we showed that um, movie in the planetarium once and you know, our director, Michael, was there and he actually gave a small lecture after Armageddon had finished just to go over the scientific inaccuracies. Great crack of a movie, great crack, but scientifically, it's a no from me. <laughs> like a lot of times they say, you know, science fiction leads to science fact. And one thing I would say is, you know, if you're a big fan of Star Trek, you'll see over the years how, you know, from Star Trek, the original series, some things have come to fruition, like, you know, sliding doors and, you know, little pads that you talk into. And I get this is me nerding out. I do apologize. No, Stop we, me if I'm talking. This is what we want to hear is the nerding out. See, we just really want to. So Star Trek, the original series, I believe, had like a pilot episode and it didn't go too well. And so they went back to the drawing board and they got in an actual science team, like scientists to try and go over the information and see, would this be scientifically possible? And so that's how Star Trek seemed to sort of... Um, get things right you know in the future so they actually put a lot of thought and effort into it um so that's that is my little nerdy fact and that you know, sometimes when people want to do it right they will put in a lot of effort into it so i really do have a big love for the science behind star trek because they do think about it even beam me up scotty well, <laughs> maybe not that, but, you know, um, having having met William Shatner, you know, he's a, he's a pretty charismatic person. And, um, you know, if he, if he said anything to me, if he told me that, you know, hey, the moon is going to crash into the earth tomorrow, I'd believe him because he's so believable. Is it true, though, that if you're uh, going into space, well, ta- ta- like time travel, I know with um, the God particle, and I'm not going to start getting into all that sort of stuff, but... Um, <laughs> But, you know, there, there is, has been an awful lot of scientific work in trying to, um, you know, to see if it, was, if it was possible at all. What are your thoughts on that? On, you know, if you go into space, when you come back, are you actually younger, older? What, what, what ways it work again? One of the, um, the, like, it happens in so many science fiction movies um, where one guy tries to explain the, like, a wormhole to another person and they do the thing where they fold the paper in half and they stick a pen through it to explain how space can bend and you can travel from one point in time to the other through a wormhole. That is the closest that science has at the minute in terms of time travel because they think they exist, they're pretty sure they exist, and they're pretty sure that you, it would take you to another point in time but the issue is that they're too unstable and they exist for like 
seconds at a time and they're very small in space once you get into areas like time travel and that kind of thing it gets very theoretical because we haven't had much of an interaction with it yet so I think in that way movies are absolutely fine to like do whatever they want because we can't you know it's our best guess too but interstellar does cover time travel um through those kinds of means and apparently it's as close to the science of it as it exists so far so that's okay i must have a look at interstellar i haven't seen it yet but would that be like you know time not being linear you know and yeah that that type of thing We're, we're talking very we're getting very much into you know, astrophysics and uh, yeah, I mean, like, like a, a little, a little beyond me, I have to say. Um, but yeah, no, I know that that movie when it did come out, um, a previous director of the observatory here, Professor Mark Bailey. I know we had a conversation about it, and he, you know, was quite impressed with with how it all was. So, you know, if someone with, you know, a lot of academic acclaim like that is saying, hey, this is actually not too bad, you know, the movie's done right. And, you know, well, would I love to have a TARDIS so that I could go back in time, forward in time? Yes. Um, how possible is it all to happen within our lifetime? Definitely will not happen. But, you know, there's there's scientists and astrophysicists out there who are dedicating their lives to try and figure it out. And I know um, even Professor Brian Cox has you know, spoken about it in some of his even public shows and even getting into it. It's it starts to boggle the brain. And yeah. then you you think to yourself, do I have a headache or am I just... <laughs> don't know what's going on but so when you get into time travel and things it's very complicated but the one thing that we can say and show in the planetarium is that whenever you're looking at a star in the sky so take uh take there's a star called vega that's in the summer night sky it's 25 light years away from us the light that left vega left basically 25 years ago so there's if there was something at vega it would be seeing us 25 years in the past so I would be once again a young child, which would be great. Um, but so there's there's this whole thing that, you know, if there is intelligent life out there, you know, if they're looking at us, they're looking at us in the past. So we may not have developed yet. Um, so that's why they're probably thinking to themselves, oh, there's there's nothing out there to explore. We'll just stay here. Um, so it does get really complex and really mind boggling. But do you know yeah. what? Kids absolutely love it. <laughs> Yeah, I love it too. <laughs> yeah, but they even if they're, it. yeah, but yeah, because you know the way they're saying, you know, if there was a signal, you know, if they are, there's some, um, is it in Australia or something? Scientists are trying to, they've been backed by some Russian millionaire to try and find them some signal or something. But if the that signal has reached Earth by the time it reached Earth, um, it's so far away in time. That if those aliens, whatever they are, came to Earth, it would be in another time. We would be gone. Basically. Right? Yeah. Basically, yeah. And so, like, if we were trying to look at something that's, say, 65 million years or 65 million light years away from us, that would be 65 million years, light years, million, oh, I'm getting myself confused now, 65 million years ago. So that if there's something there, they're seeing the death of the dinosaurs here. You know, it's yeah. very, very, very complex, but yeah. interesting it at the same time. Yeah, yeah. So you don't think there's anything um, hiding in Area 51 or anything like that now yeah. over in America? <laughs> I don't yeah. think that um, they'd be able to keep it a secret 
for as long as they have. I, if it was something that big, I just don't think it would be possible because, I mean, as as you know, government documents get leaked all the time. I think if something like this existed, um, it would like human nature, something would happen, an accident would happen, someone would like let it slip. I just don't think it's possible that they're keeping aliens there. But oh, why I wish it were true. Yeah, same. <laughs> it would be really awesome if it were true. But like, you know, in searching for intelligent life, the closest place that we should be looking is actually a moon of Jupiter called Europa. It's a water moon covered in a big thick layer of ice. And what scientists say is where there's water, there is life. And yeah, I know NASA have some have interest in going to it. And so there might be a international effort to send something there to test the water that's coming out of the, the geysers that are on Europa, you know, so we might not have to look that far away after all. Yeah, well, we might end up having to um, emigrate to Mars anyway. So the whole <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Get ready to shake up summer with the Get Active ABC Sunshine Fill Programme for kids and families. Get set for land-based adventure at our summer schemes, or why not get adventurous and maybe get wet at our splash-tastic water sports summer programme. There are so many things to do, and all we need is you. See getactiveabc.com summer for all the details. Uh, what about the two of you? I mean, how did you get involved in all this in the first place? I mean, the two of you are obviously really, really passionate about about what you do and, um, you know, working there. So, yeah, if we could, Courtney, maybe tell us uh, first how how you got involved in the planetarium in the first place. Yes. Um, so I am um, my bachelor's was in psychology and then a master's of science was in political psychology so um I was very into stats and you know statistics and maths and that kind of thing doesn't scare me and I'd always been interested in uh, astronomy since I was at school so I did physics when I was at school and I loved the astronomy topic and it really stuck with me and um as well did I you go to school in Armagh no I went to school in Banbridge so about 45 minutes away, so not that far. Yeah. Um, uh, I, I was just, I was always very interested in it. And then um, I'm very passionate about communicating scientific ideas to like the general public. I love, uh, I think it's such important work to do because I think there's this huge gap between the general public and science that's being produced. And I think that has nothing to do with them, but it does. And I think that this is like an important communication middle ground that doesn't exist in a lot of places the role is so unique and um when i saw that there was a vacancy i just immediately applied and um loved it have loved it since day one um and i just i really enjoy the, the the ability you have in this role to inspire people is amazing and it's just such a positive place to come to work yeah and you and you heather um, well, I have been in the ARMA Observatory and Planetarium for six years now. Um, so my undergraduate degree is in history, and then I have a master's degree in museum studies. Um, so I initially started out that uh, like history was my thing, but I'd had a love of astronomy like Courtney from childhood, from school. I just, I wasn't good and I'm still not good at maths. So 
my so confidence no in <laughs> well you know um that's one thing i say to kids is you know don't let the math scare you if you are not good at that there are science communication jobs where you can interpret science in a different way which is where i think i have struck gold in the job that i have um so i worked in i'm originally from up north from Derry, londonderry and i worked in a museum up there the tower museum for a little while and then i saw the job here and it's like hmm I wonder, could my skills in the museum sector transfer over into space? You know, because being a, hist- a history student, I'm really good at researching things and I know you love absorbing. You oh, I love it. Podcast a lot. <laughs> I'm a history buff. Um, I can absorb information quite quickly and repeat it a bit like a parrot, which is great. Um, so I got the job and all of a sudden everything became about space and it was just so amazing. I thought, how can I explore more of the environment around me? So I started to see that there was a hidden history in the Arma Observatory and Planetarium and that no one knew about the observatory. No one knew the amazing, incredible history behind us. And like over these six years, Arma has literally become my second home. I love Arma. It is the best place to me. And being able to, in my role, explore the history of the observatory, explore the history of the planetarium, as well as interpreting space. It's just the best. That's the best and of I, both worlds, yeah. It really is. And if I could tell 15-year-old me, this is what you're going to be doing in life, I I would have been all right in school you know I wouldn't have panicked as much yeah and it's interesting though that you say you know don't worry about the maths because there might be people listening to this now that um you know are really interested in science or history or anything like that and um maybe do struggle at maths and Mm -hmm. it's it is it is it not very difficult to get us to the point of getting to a levels without having maths in the first place or without having you know a lot of times you need to have you know, an A in maths to be able to do, to be able to do science in uh, for A level. Is that not the case or are there ways around it? Well, certainly in my experience, I did um, what it was called whenever I was at school, it was called step up science. I went to a high school, so maybe that might say a lot, but I was able to do biology, chemistry and physics at A level, but I only needed a C in mm-hmm. maths to get there. Um probably said a lot about me though that I struggled to get that C um, and maybe shouldn't have gone on but I I loved science anyway um, the jump between GCSE and physics and, and A-level in particularly chemistry and physics is quite massive and that's where the mathematics thing really tripped me up but um, if you're looking now Courtney's done a few careers events around this recently but if you're looking to be an astrophysicist, astronomer, there are certain paths you do have to go. It is a very, uh, I wouldn't say set in stone path, but, you know, if you want to do that, you do need maths. Yeah. And I'll let Courtney explain maybe a bit more because she heard the astronomers talking about how they got to where they were. Yes, um, I, I had a really um, good chat with um, Dr. Erin Higgins, who um, is at our observatory, and she did, um, she talked to me about her progression through school and getting to her point of um, having uh, her PhD in astronomy. And she said that, I mean, as always is important, her teachers were very encouraging and helpful. And uh, we had a discussion, especially around women in STEM and how a lot of the time women aren't encouraged into astronomy and STEM-based careers. And she said she found the opposite. 
and that her teachers were very encouraging and she came to the planetarium actually while she was still in school and she was so inspired when she came here um but definitely maths is essential for astronomy because so much of it is based around maths especially in terms of the practical work you'll be doing um it is definitely a very mathematically based career but there are careers within and around astronomy that won't require you to have you know an A level in maths for example I don't have an A level in maths and yet I'm involved in communicating astronomy so there are different definitely different paths you can take yeah it's a uh, because it is it's something that I, it is really fascinating and especially for children if you can get them young and keep them involved that's so important because as you were you mentioned Brian Cox earlier on Heather and he's mm-hmm. been He's been one of those people that's just been inspirational for, for the lay person, just ordinary people understanding more about you know the solar system and more about the planets and more about basically the the, the planet that we live on. Um, yeah, yeah. So, um, what's your favorite planet? <laughs> oh well, you know, you've asked a really loaded question there because I think you know I can't say all eight, but um, I know what mine is. Saturn is mine. Mars is mine. Why? Really? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I always, I'm sorry, but I feel so sorry for Pluto because since oh, Pluto yes. was demoted, and I'm just ever since Pluto was demoted, I was like, that was just so unfair. Definitely. I mean, in the last episode in our podcast, there an intergalactic crack. Um, uh, so basically, all astro- like all astronomers are involved with the International Astronomical Union, right? So around the 2006 period, when all this was happening, you know, our director would have been there, Michael Burton, and then, you know, the the past director, Mark Bailey. So we wanted to know what he voted. And, you know, Courtney, were we surprised? I was. I was surprised. You went to his lunch break. (laughs) Basically, basically. And my mind was blown. And so like the fact that there was a lot of astronomers that had a say in this, it wasn't just like a round table of stereotypical, like the I whole always, community voted. Um, the whole community voted. And they put forward their, their opinions and their evidence and their points that they were making. And in hindsight, especially with the discovery of more dwarf planets, I think it's a fair decision. However, it just comes across really mean. <laughs> it's mean. Yeah, it's, mean. Yeah. It's, it's like the playground bullies. Yeah. yeah. And all because, and we actually, back in the last lockdown there, um, our uh, colleague and manager, Martina, got to interview um, uh, Mike Brown. Mm-hmm. who is his Twitter handle is Pluto Killer because he is the person that discovered the dwarf planet Eris I know so he discovered Eris which turned out to be a little bigger than Pluto but they weren't going to call it a planet and so this is what sparked the whole debate and I just he was so great you can find the interview on our YouTube channel but he was so brilliant talking about the discovery of Eris and the demotion then of Pluto he was so lovely <laughs> and so why you said Mars is your favorite planet why is that there's just so much to Mars you know Mars used to have um oceans on its surface Mm -hmm. and then you know just by bad luck you know things started happening in its center you know and it lost atmosphere magnetic fields wasn't as strong so the water went away but it left behind rusty red dust 
it's actually more orange really, but you know, it looks red in the sky. And, you know, as well as having this massive scar on its side called the Marner Valley or the Valles Marnaris, it has the largest volcano in the whole of the solar system, which is called Mount Olympus or Olympus Moms. I mean, for such a tiny planet, it's, I say tiny, you know, it's, it's, slight, it's smaller than Earth, but bigger than Mercury, but it has a lot going on. Yeah. Or something so small. And they only discovered the water fairly, fairly recently. It wasn't that long ago they discovered water on Mars, sure, wasn't it? Yeah, they were, they've always been looking for it and they find a lot of evidence um, for it. And you can see at certain times of the year, because it does have seasons, um, that you can see almost like little like trickles or rivulets, you know, coming down where something underneath is thawing. Um, the surface of Mars is about five degrees Celsius, which is, you know, a comfortable temperature for we here in Northern Ireland. But, um, <laughs> you know, uh, it's it's just got, and it's got like carbon dioxide ice caps, which is so interesting. And like, we can actually land on it. it, it that, I just love it. And if you go to Mars, like it's, it's going to take a long time to get there. You might have to eat bugs to survive <laughs> going to the bathroom like it's just, mm, I could really go off on one on it but I won't because <laughs> I'll take up all the time and Courtney what did you say Saturn Saturn yeah I just to me it's kind of when people think of a planet they think of like the ring system they think of Saturn I think a lot of the time and um, I just think it's so interesting for example it has 82 moons um, so it dethroned Jupiter is having the most moons but they think there are hundreds more that we just haven't found yet. It has a moon inside its rings called Pan, which is really cute and UFO shaped. Um, it has a lovely like blue hexagon on its North Pole. Um, it's just such a beautiful color and uh, it's so light it would float in a bath if you could shrink it down. Um, there's just so much going on. And I mean, obviously, you know, I know we can't land on a tether. It's no landing planet. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I think it's beautiful and it has enough moons to warrant a lot of um, exploration. Nice. Well, that's really, that's brilliant. Um, and the two of you uh, plan on staying where you are for the foreseeable future? Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, we're in it for the long haul. We absolutely love it here and like being able to do a podcast as well is incredible. So, you know, we we're in it. And we'll hopefully be part of the archives in the future, you know, for having been here for like 50 years or something. Heather always has her history hat on with her saying always. that we're going to be in the archives one day. Um, and yeah, no, uh, it is. It's it's such a good job to have. And uh, we have a whole summer lined up here. Um, and it's just, yeah. Oh, it's also just so lovely being able to like be in a workplace again, surrounded by the team and the public. And I think... Um, element has really been missing from a lot of people's lives over the past year and a half so we're very fortunate yeah what's it been like in lockdown um did did was it tough financially on the you know for you guys there you know not having the public in how, how did you how did you guys manage i mean i know uh, you're probably still working we were i mean we were very fortunate to um not be furloughed and we're always grateful for that um so we had to really overhaul how we worked because obviously before 
lockdown, we worked in a very specific way in that, you know, people come to us and we do the events here. We take them up our grounds. You know, everything was very much here. So during the lockdown, we really had to think outside the box. We started doing online events, trying to contact people outside of the organization to see if they would, you know, collaborate with us. So we were very fortunate that we managed to get an interview with Helen Sharman, the first ever British astronaut. Um, we got interviews, as I said, with like Mike, Professor Mike Brown. Um, we got an interview. Um, I actually managed to get an interview with Daryl Breen, the comedian. Oh, really? Um, oh, he's really into his science. Yeah. Yeah, he, he was really loving it. So we actually created an event called Dara and the NGC where I hosted alongside Dara and it was it was insane. It was amazing. Um, the best event I've ever done in my life. But, you know, now that things are starting to get back into a way of working, we're now having to think, right, well, we've worked like this for a period of time. How are we now going to merge the two? Because we actually can provide a really good online presence. And we want to keep that up. Like, we don't want to lose that. So, you know, come September, once the summer is over, we're going to sit down and think, right, how do we keep this going, but still provide great in-house experiences as well? Yeah, I think that's for a lot of uh, businesses and a lot of places have found that there's been certain advantages to discovering ways of working like that, you know, that you can connect with more people, maybe that people that couldn't actually come to the to the observatory, mm-hmm. to come to the planetarium, and come come to see you, that could you know still interact with you in a you know remote capacity, but as well as that, I suppose you were busy. You know, you said you were revamping the place when it was shut down, so that gave you an opportunity when you didn't have the public there to get your hands in, stuck in there, and change things up. Yes, it did. I mean, for me, again, with my museum training, um, I was more than happy to sit and do exhibition design and development because it it's a passion of mine so I was really excited to be part of a team that was enthusiastic about creating a new experience so the exhibition area is a real um, marriage of research and education in our facility because the research team the astronomers and students there and the education team came together to create the information so everything is covered which is amazing and like I think back to the old exhibition which was great but what we've done we've got a really unique experience now and it's something that as Courtney said will inspire people to come and to learn and to go forward and think about a career in space yeah and the fact that a lot of people are um, staying at home this summer and not not going off I know normally you'd have a lot of school groups and things like that and um I suppose you'll miss out on the foreign visitors because we won't be getting them. But with so many people staying at home and people that might not have even known that you were there um, will be coming. You know, it's a day out. I know you have all the facilities for a proper a day out with the family. Mm-hmm. You know, We do. And we also, uh, during lockdown, upgraded. We have now a changing places facility, um, which is a facility for anyone who needs, you know, extra things and like a hoist and a shower and you know a a, a toilet that is bluetooth activated which i need for my house bluetooth activated. yeah i have to explain this oh yeah i uh, you can sync up your phone and flush the toilet from your phone i love it it's really amazing (laughs) it's a really great facility and it it um improves access so people who maybe were a bit wary about coming because they mightn't have had the proper bathroom uh, to facility to use now can come to us and experience 
everything that everyone else is doing, you know, and just all be a part of it. And like, as Courtney can attest, you know, she during lockdown did a very intensive BSL course. Yes. So um, myself and a few other members of the education team, we took BSL level one. So that's 101, 102 and 103, which means that we're able to have um, fairly basic conversations. Um, But we could ask you, you know, about your day, how you got here. We can explain the facilities, um, basically general conversation that you would have with anybody. We can now have with uh, members of the deaf or hard of hearing community, which is so lovely. Oh, that's fantastic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that really is. So it really is, you know, encompassing for everybody in the community that can come. I'm sure there's a lot of people out there listening that are, you know, thinking that trying to think of things to do and places to go, you know, that will mm-hmm. be able to facilitate them. So yeah, we know and, that that's there. Oh, definitely. And for people who may be thinking, oh, it's indoors, it's a cinema. We also have outdoor experiences as well. So we've just launched our Astro Park Eco Tour, which is um, a tour through our grounds. We've got 14 acres of land and it's taken by um, our expert tour guide, um, Dr. Rock, who you will hear in our I've heard um, Dr. Podcast. Rock, yes. Yes. So he will be talking. He named Dr. Rock. I know. It's, I know. He began life as a geologist, I believe. (laughs) Yes, he did. Um, And he's just, he's so great. And he'll be taking, you know, he'll be talking about space and environment. So taking you to, this world and beyond in in the Astro Park tour, which is all outside. So if you're more comfortable for an outside experience, we have that for you as well. Yeah. Okay. Well, listen, that's it's that's brilliant. Um, it's been brilliant talking to you, and I I hope everybody I tell everybody now to listen to inter intergalactic crack because it really is great crack, and you'll learn an awful lot of stuff. You know, you you guys have such great banter between the pair of you, and uh, you have an awful lot of really interesting stuff there. So. Um, I hope that people go and visit the, the planetarium and um, this this summer and the weather keeps up and even if not we could go inside to the to the inside part and learn a lot of stuff there. Exactly and we're more than happy to welcome Muse with open arms. We're really excited to see everybody this summer. Okay. Thanks very much Heather and Courtney for chatting with me. Thank you so Thank much you. for having us. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed that great chat with Courtney and Heather. Um, Make sure you take a trip sometime this summer up to the planetarium. I'm sure you won't be disappointed. Remember to keep getting all of your news from RMI and I hope you join us next time for our podcast. From the... I don't know what to say. I'm just speechless. To the... I can't believe it. I can't believe it. We see all sorts of life-changing moments at McKinney Competitions. How would you react? Cars, houses, tech bundles and more. From just £2 a ticket. No purchase necessary. For competitions, rules and conditions, see mckinneycompetitions.com.